Due to the nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sexual assault, and substance abuse. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. To get help on mental health and sexual violence, visit spotify.com resources. It's the middle of the night. The first thing 22-year-old Linda Odell notices is the light in her eyes. It's blinding, right above her and her husband's bed. The next thing she notices, there's a man in their room. He's holding a flashlight and wearing a ski mask. She's not sure he's real at first, but her husband's awake too, and the intruder tells them he has a gun. He throws Linda some bindings and tells her to tie her husband so that he's on his stomach, legs and arms bound behind his back. When she's done, the man ties her up in the same way. Then he leaves. Linda and her husband can't do anything except lie there, listening to the stranger rummage through their kitchen. They think, maybe it's a robbery. The man returns with a stack of plates and bowls. He puts them on Linda's husband's back and hisses a warning. He better not hear the dishes move or he'll cut her husband's ear off. The man unties Linda's ankles and leads her out of the room. They walk through the dark, quiet house. That's when Linda realizes she was wrong. This isn't a robbery, and something terrible is about to happen. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're heading to California to join authorities in the decades-long hunt for the Golden State Killer a man who raped nearly 50 people and killed 13 during the 1970s and 80s. Some of you listening might already know about this case, though this episode is less about the horrible things the Golden State Killer did and more about how he was finally caught. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. The Golden State Killer's most violent crimes spanned a 10-year period through the 1970s and 80s. For years after that, people across California and the country had no idea who he was. They were just left to wonder, is he still out there? An army of detectives, criminologists, and citizen sleuths poured over photos and case files trying to figure out his identity— By doing that, they learned a lot about him, but this knowledge didn't solve the mystery. It just fueled their nightmares. That is, until the 1990s, when forensic DNA technology is in rapid development. We're going to start this story in 1998 with an Orange County investigator named Larry Poole. Larry doesn't know the name Golden State Killer yet. In fact, no one does. It hasn't been coined. At this point, no one even knows how many crimes the man we now call the Golden State Killer committed. But Larry is well aware that DNA tech is changing how investigators solve crimes. He's with Clue, the countywide law enforcement unsolved element. He got transferred from the sex crimes unit to look into some of Orange County's cold cases. Right now, that means sifting through the horrific details of four murders. Keith and Patrice Harrington killed in August 1980. Their attacker slipped into their home in the middle of the night, then tied them up. Patrice was sexually assaulted, and she and her husband were bludgeoned to death in their bed. Manuela Whithune, February 1981. The details are similar. She was tied up, sexually assaulted, and bludgeoned to death. The same thing happened to Janelle Cruz in May 1986. Now, clearly, we can see an M.O. emerging here. But in the 80s, these were all handled as separate cases. It wasn't until the year before, in 1997, The DNA analysis of the perpetrator's semen told investigators it was the same guy. If you listen to our episode, The First DNA Murder Conviction, you probably know some DNA basics, but here's a rundown just in case. DNA is in almost every cell in our bodies. It's made of two long chains fused together to form a structure called a double helix. Encoded into this double helix is all of your genetic information. About 99.9% of all human DNA is the same, but that remaining 0.1% is unique to each person. 
Geneticist Alec Jeffries figured out how to isolate and measure that unique pattern in the 1980s using a technique he called DNA fingerprinting. Since this discovery, new advancements have continued to find better and more accurate ways to measure DNA profiles. In the late 90s, there's a new technique called STR, or short tandem repeats. Uh, let me try to explain what that is. Okay, let's go back to the double helix. Again, it's made of two long strands. Each strand is made up of smaller subunits called nucleotides, which form a chain. At the backbone of a nucleotide is one of four nitrogen-based molecules, which are represented by the letters A, G, T, and C. STR analysis works by focusing on specific locations where repeating sequences of the AGTC molecules are found. Usually, people have a different number of these repeats. So, for example, a sequence like TGC might repeat five times in one person and eight times in another. By counting the repeats, experts can determine if a DNA sample came from a certain person. And if all that is as confusing to you as it is to me, What's important to remember is that STR is how these four homicides Larry Poole is staring at were linked. So at this point, investigators know one man is responsible. They just don't know who that man is. Larry flips through the grisly details of the case files over and over, hoping something useful will jump out at him. And then it does. At some point, he notices a case number for the Ventura County Police Department scrawled on one of the pages of the Harrington file. Ventura is in California, about 100 miles north of where Larry is, so he's not sure what this number is doing there. He calls to find out and is told the case number belongs to a double homicide from May 1980. Charlene and Lyman Smith were killed in their Ventura home. The details are what jump out at Larry. They were tied up, bludgeoned in their bed. Charlene was raped. The Ventura County PD has a semen sample from the crime. They send it over to Larry's lab in Orange County so it can be tested. Lo and behold, the DNA profiles match. That means Larry's killer is responsible for six homicides, four in Orange County, and now two in Ventura. Well, you might be wondering why it's taken until 1998 to link these crimes from the 1980s. Well, in the 80s, different precincts did not typically share information. Well, that's why Larry's never heard about these Ventura murders. It's also why he's now wondering, could there be more? He looks at other areas for similar homicides from the same time period. He finds some further north in Santa Barbara County. A couple named Deborah Manning and Alexander Offerman, late 1979, tied up, shot and killed in their bedroom. There are two main differences. The killer used a gun and there was no sexual assault. But it seems like Alexander broke free of his restraints and fought back so it's possible the killer didn't have time for his usual M.O. Larry also finds another double homicide that took place in the same area about two years later. Sherry Domingo and her boyfriend Greg Sanchez were killed in 1981. Tied up, shot, 
then bludgeoned in their bedroom. The cases feel similar. Middle-class couples, tied up, killed in their bedrooms late at night. But Santa Barbara either can't or won't provide Orange County with forensic evidence from their crime scenes. For now, Larry has to just focus on the cases he has access to. He goes down old suspect lists for each homicide, looking for a common name. Nothing. He tests the suspects he can against the DNA profile. Nothing. There's a database for convicted felons, but it doesn't yield any matches either. So he turns to the public. He speaks with a journalist at the Orange County Register and tells them there was a serial killer in the area during the 1980s. He might still be out there. After the article comes out, the murderer gets a name. The original Night Stalker. It's a play on the name of a different serial killer, Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. This killer's crime started earlier than Richard's, hence the original. Despite Larry's efforts, the leads dry up. By 2001, all he can do is stare at the victim's photos pinned to his office wall, hoping there's a break in the case soon. And there is one thanks to a different police department over 400 miles away. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen for free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. In the early 2000s, Larry Poole and SoCal investigators aren't the only people benefiting from some new and improved DNA technology. A crime lab almost 400 miles north of them has been working on a DNA profile, too. This one's for a serial rapist that terrorized the region in the 1970s. The East Area Rapist, E-A-R or E-R as he was known, operated in Northern California between 1976 and 1978. 
He arrived late at night and woke up women or couples by shining a flashlight in their faces. His famous tactic was his, quote, alarm system. After tying up his victims, he put dishes on the man's back, then took the woman to another room and raped her. If the man moved, the ear would hear. This predator had dozens of victims. He was so prolific that eventually, some residents of the area weren't even confused when he woke them up at night. They heard the door creak, saw the blinding flashlight, and their first thought was simply, he's here. Files with these unnerving details are stored in the basement of a crime lab in Contra Costa County, Northern California. That's where criminologist Paul Holes found them back in 1994. He's been obsessed with the case ever since and wants to find justice for the victims. But there's a catch. The statute of limitations for rape back in the 1970s was three years. They're well beyond that now. So even if the ear is caught, police can't charge him. Legal justice is impossible. But Paul wants the justice of truth. Even though dozens of investigators, private eyes, and criminologists have already tried and failed to learn the ear's name, Paul's convinced he'll be the exception. In the mid-1990s, he realized DNA might give him an answer— he and his crime lab used three separate ear rape kits to create a DNA profile of the perpetrator. Fast forward to 2001, when Paul sends his profile to the Orange County Crime Lab. He heard about Larry Poole's cases there, the original Night Stalker homicides, and thought there were similarities. Sexual assault, late-night intruder, couples tied up. But really, he just wants to rule out a connection, which he can't do because they're a match. The East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker are the same person. It's probably obvious, but I have to say it. This is huge. We spend entire episodes on single cases that go cold. A lot of times a breakthrough can stun a community and breathe new life into an investigation. This is a breakthrough in 10 separate cold case murders and around 50 unsolved rapes. Homicide investigators can now use evidence, survivor accounts, and suspects from all the ear's crimes in Northern California. So, yeah, it's massive news. And when it's announced, the state of California is floored. Especially those up north who lived through the ear's reign. They haven't heard about their tormentor for years. Now he has a new name, Ear-Ons. That's a combination of the acronyms for East Area Rapist and Original Night Stalker. It's a mouthful. It's also not his real name, which means there's work to do. Paul sends his ear files to Larry Poole in Orange County, and Larry is off to the races. He's got jurisdiction since the homicides can still be prosecuted, unlike the serial rapes. But eight years later, in the summer of 2009, Larry hasn't achieved any significant movement. The case is still unsolved. And Paul is now the chief of forensics at his crime lab, 
which he calls an administrative position, a nice word for boring, maybe. That could be why he finds himself thinking about Eron's again, and eventually takes a look at the old files. Once he starts, it's hard to stop. Among Eron's many horrifying habits, he ransacked homes and raided fridges while his victims were tied up. He stole sentimental items like heirlooms. He played with people too, like calling them after his attack, breathing into the line before saying, I'm gonna kill you. And he's careful. He watched his victims' homes for days, unlocking windows or gates ahead of time for an easy entrance and exit. He always wore a mask and gloves. He spoke through his teeth to disguise his voice. The limited number of clues to his identity are small slip-ups, like shoe prints he left near a crime scene, size 9, or when a victim heard him cry and say he hated someone named Bonnie. These are just hints, though, not enough for a true lead. Eron's is an intelligent monster, and he does not want to be found. By this point, investigators think his homicide count is around 12. The 10 SoCal victims and another double murder up in Sacramento County during his time as the East Area Rapist. Unless there are cases they're missing, it looks like he stopped killing in 1986 with Janelle Cruz's murder, the one we mentioned near the beginning of this episode. He could be dead, or he's cooled off and is blending in with a family and a home. Maybe he's someone's neighbor. Maybe he's Paul's neighbor. Or maybe he's still out there killing. It's a haunting thought, the kind that can keep you up at night. This sense of fear might be why people all over California feel consumed by this phantom. The news that Ear and Ons are one and the same ignited a frenzy amongst internet web sleuths. Message boards dedicated to theories about this killer explode. Citizen investigators hunt down leads from swivel chairs, retired detectives who once worked on the ear case weigh in on forums or publish their intel in books. Paul doesn't really engage with this community until 2012 when he gets a call. The woman on the other end introduces herself as Michelle McNamara. You might have heard her name. Her cold case blog, True Crime Diary, made her kind of a fixture in the true crime world. She's a writer and burgeoning investigator. And right now, she's working on a piece about Eron's for Los Angeles magazine. Paul's hesitant to talk to a reporter, but part of him knows more attention on the case is a good thing. Public interest can generate leads. So he talks to Michelle, then waits for her article to come out. It's a sensation. Michelle gives the true crime community and the country much more than a story. She has a directive. Find this guy. She gives him a catchier name, too. The Golden State Killer. The article's just the beginning. Michelle plans to write a book, so she keeps reaching out to Paul about the case. He responds, 
Because Michelle's not just a great writer, she's a dogged investigator. She tours the areas the Golden State Killer prowled, interviews victims and retired detectives. She even convinces Orange County to let her take boxes of case files home with her. She shares the information she gathers with Paul. He returns the favor when he can, because they're kindred spirits, driven by a need to catch this killer. Michelle later writes about this feeling in her notebook, saying the Golden State Killer is, quote, a compulsive prowler and searcher. We who hunt him suffer from the same affliction. I love that because it's true. Investigators sometimes have a lot in common with the people they're trying to find. They have to be obsessive, focused, always on the prowl, not for victims, but for information. And sometimes, like in this case, they have to keep that dedication up for decades. It seems like Michelle is prepared to do this work until she finds the Golden State Killer, however long that takes. But in 2016, her investigation abruptly ends. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In April 2016, Michelle McNamara dies in her sleep, an accidental overdose from prescription medications. It's an incredible loss for her husband and daughter, for the true crime community she led, for Paul Holes, too. He just lost his investigative partner. But he continues to rely on her ideas, because before Michelle died, she had a theory Maybe Ancestry websites could lead investigators to the Golden State Killer. You might have done one of these. Uh, my cousin did for our family, and I learned that in 1123, I have an ancestor who was a drunk degenerate who fell in a river. They also make pretty good gifts, actually, for family members. For those of you who don't know, you can buy a home DNA testing kit and send your saliva to an Ancestry site which they'll analyze in their labs. Your results and your DNA are then uploaded to a database. The goal is to usually see what part of the world your ancestors come from, but it can also be used to find relatives, birth parents, and the like. From an investigator's point of view, these sites are massive lockers full of DNA profiles. And Paul Holes thinks, if he can find someone related to the Golden State Killer, then eventually, they'll get this guy's name. In early 2017, Paul decides to test the theory with a free website, whysearch.org. He uploads the early profile he made from the ear rape kits and quickly gets a match. There's a guy in a nursing home in Oregon who's related to the murderer. So, obviously, Paul's thinking, we gotta meet him. 
the FBI gets a subpoena from Y-Search to release the account holder's information. Officers go to Oregon, swab the man's cheek, test the swab, and he does share a relative with a Golden State killer. But that relative dates back 900 years. The problem is Paul is still working with an STR profile, but now he's realizing DNA technology has advanced and genealogists don't use STR. They use SNP profiles, short for single nucleotide polymorphisms. Remember, STR analysis measures repeating nucleotide sequences of A, T, G, and C. SNP analysis measures each individual A, T, G, and C. SNP testing has a few advantages. You only need a small sample of DNA to look for SNPs, which means information can be pulled from mostly degraded samples. Individual nucleotides also don't change much over generations. So SNP is really effective in identifying distant relatives. It sounds great, but there's a catch. Law enforcement is behind on the fast-paced tech advancements in DNA. As of 2017, direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies are the only labs capable of creating this type of profile. So here's what Paul needs. A company that can make an SNP profile for him and more DNA to send them. Because he's completely out. Remember, Paul works in Northern California in Contra Costa County. The DNA he has access to is from ear victims. That means old rape kits. DNA degrades over time, even more so if it's not kept at the right temperature. So most of his samples aren't usable. In the 1990s, Paul used up all the DNA he had making the STR profiles that linked the East Area Rapist to the original Night Stalker. He has none left. So he talks to Orange County. The Golden State Killer had four victims in their jurisdiction, and they have semen samples. Paul tells them what he wants to do and asks for access to those samples. Their response is a resounding no. The district attorney declines to let Paul use DNA from any of the murders in Orange County. It isn't clear what his reason is, but using data from ancestry sites has come under debate in recent years. One of the big questions is whether or not law enforcement should be able to use these private websites full of personal details in their investigations. The LA Times discussed its possible long-term effects like, quote, eroding privacy protections and broadening police power. This is also genetic information we're talking about. It can reveal health or psychological predispositions. The thought of investigators getting free access to that is unnerving. But Paul's already checked the legality of this with the FBI. They say it's fine. Still, Orange County won't budge. Paul has to look elsewhere. He zeroes in on the case from Ventura. Charlene and Lyman Smith. There was semen recovered from the scene. Paul gets in touch with the Ventura Crime Lab and begs for access to it. Their response is a resounding, of course. 
even better. The sample they give Paul was kept in a freezer for decades. It's in perfect shape. Now that he has this DNA, the next step is to find a genealogy company to create an SNP profile. A place called Family Tree DNA agrees. Paul assembles a team to get the process started, which includes some FBI agents. That fall, genealogist Barbara Ray Venter joins them. Barbara is super qualified. She helps solve an infamous cold case in New Hampshire, the Bear Brook Murders, using DNA and ancestry sites. Genealogy is a retirement hobby for her, but it's a hobby she's really, really good at. Near the beginning of 2018, the team uploads the killer's SNP profile to Family Tree DNA, and Paul eagerly waits for the hits to pour in. The clock is ticking at this point. Paul's been working on this case for around 24 years, and he's retiring in four months. He needs answers fast. The first matches are closer than the guy from Oregon, Paul and the team are able to identify some third cousins, meaning people who share a great-great-grandparent with the Golden State Killer, but that's still really far off. Look at it this way. First cousins have the same grandparent. If Paul and his team find a first cousin of the Golden State Killer, their pool of suspects can only be the male descendants of that shared grandparent. Even if he has a lot of cousins, it narrows down the pool from millions to maybe a dozen. Now, think about your second cousin. You share a great-grandparent. Just one generation removed, the suspect pool could quadruple. Paul and the team have to keep trying to find closer relatives to narrow their suspect list. A month later, they still don't have what they need. DNA is great but it can only take them so far considering they're at the mercy of whoever uploads their profile to the site. This is where good old investigative work comes in. The matches on the site allow them to find a few of the Golden State Killer's great-great-grandparents. Picture each of those ancestors at the top of their own family tree. Paul and his team need to fill in all the branches they can so they can find the one that hopefully leads them to their killer. It's called reverse tree building. To do this, the team pours over articles, census or birth records, and social media, anything they can find. As they work down each tree, they keep getting closer to the branch that holds the name of the Golden State Killer. It's slow moving though. There isn't a leap forward, until early 2018, when Barbara uploads the S&P profile to her personal account on MyHeritage.com. It hits on a second cousin. They share great-grandparents with the Golden State Killer. Just like that, the team's suspect pool shrinks considerably. They then narrow down the remaining suspects with what they know from the case files and victim statements, like his race, Caucasian, or geography, he likely lived in California at the time. The team also has some other genetic information that's helpful. Another ancestry site they used as a supplemental search, GEDmatch, 
has a feature that can predict the color of someone's eyes from their DNA profile. It tells them the Golden State killers are blue. This detail ends up being pivotal because after the group finishes their process of elimination, they have just six names. Only one has blue eyes. His name is Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. When Paul and the team dig into D'Angelo's background, the pieces finally come together. His geography. He lived in the greater Sacramento area during the ear days. He still does. In Citrus Heights, where a few of the attacks were. His age, 72. That means he was in his early 30s during the peak years of his crimes. It's around the age witnesses and investigators thought he was. His occupation? Retired police officer. So he'd know tactics like shining a flashlight into someone's eyes to blind or confuse them. And maybe he knew how to navigate a crime scene without getting caught. D'Angelo was also fired from the police force in 1979, which might explain his murderous rage that year. It's when he started his attacks in Southern California. He even had a former fiancé named Bonnie. Remember, one of the Golden State Killer's victims mentioned their attacker said that name while crying. This is it. The only thing is, it's now the end of March 2018, and since Paul is supposed to retire in a day... He won't be there when authorities confirm it's D'Angelo. So he decides he has to check the suspect out himself. He gets D'Angelo's address and drives to the house. It's in a quiet, safe neighborhood. Paul sits outside, staring at the tidy, well-kept lawn. As far as anyone knows, this guy is just a next-door neighbor. Paul fights the urge to just go in and ask, Is it you? Instead, he leaves. Asking won't do anything. The only way to confirm their suspicions is to test D'Angelo's DNA against their profile. Meaning, they have to get his DNA. The FBI and the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office began surveillance in April. Unmarked cars circle the block or hover at the neighborhood perimeter. For a few days, officers get a good look at D'Angelo's utterly ordinary life. He lives with his daughter and granddaughter. He mows the lawn, works on his car, goes shopping. Which is exactly what our investigative team needs him to do. They follow him to a Hobby Lobby store, and while he shops, they swab the handle of his car. They bring what they find back to the lab, and the DNA is a match. It's huge news, but the Sacramento DA wants to be absolutely sure they've got their guy. Investigators will need to get a second sample, so the agents pounce at night and rummage through D'Angelo's trash. They get some soda cans, water bottles, and a piece of tissue. The tissue ends up having the DNA that clinches it. Joseph D'Angelo is the Golden State Killer. 
On April 24th, as the sun sets, D'Angelo tidies his house and goes out to do a few chores in his yard. Suddenly, a horde of police officers surround him. A stunned D'Angelo is placed in handcuffs. He doesn't resist, doesn't really do or say anything. As he's hauled off, he finally speaks to the officers. He left a roast in the oven. The news hits the press and the media fervor is intense. Press conferences, announcements, headlines, the works. Those who have hunted the killer for decades rejoice. Like Larry Poole. When the LA Times gets a soundbite, he says, quote, It's a relief I haven't felt ever. As for Paul Holes, he gets to retire and maybe find some peace. But first, he wants to call the survivors of the Golden State Killer and assure them, we found him. Joseph D'Angelo is charged with the 12 murders authorities had connected to the Golden State Killer, as well as an additional homicide from 1975 and 26 counts of kidnapping to commit robbery. Because the statute of limitations for rape was only three years in the 1970s, he can't be charged with most of his crimes, but he makes a deal. He'll admit to everything, plead guilty, and listen to each victim that wants to be heard. In return, the death sentence is off the table. In June of 2020, many of his victims and their families arrive in Sacramento, California. One of them is Linda Odell, the woman from the beginning of this episode. The hearing takes place at a college in a converted ballroom. The location is strange, but it's the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. They need to accommodate social distancing. D'Angelo is wheeled in wearing a plastic face shield. The COVID of it all is a reminder of just how long ago he got away with it. His first victim was in the 1970s. For over 40 years, D'Angelo got to live his life, grow old, while that army of investigators tried and failed to find him. He probably felt so safe, so smug, like he'd gotten away with it. When his victims read their statements, they talk about how he changed their lives, how they spent years looking over their shoulders, wondering if he was still out there. They remind him that he didn't get away with it. It took decades, but their monster has been caught. The judge gives D'Angelo 11 consecutive life sentences without parole and says, the survivors have spoken clearly the defendant deserves no mercy. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Monday with another cold case. For more information on the Golden State Killer, amongst the many sources we used, we found three books extremely helpful to our research. Unmasked by Paul Holes, I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, and I Know Who You Are by Barbara Ray Venter. 
You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Kate Murdoch, edited by Karis Allen, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. 